This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... An Echoic Chambers. The Vilno Vampire. The Final Tranche of Horror Masterclass Highlights. And Occult Venice. Did you know that both of us, Ken and Robin, have written books and games for Atlas Games? This month, they're featuring products by us on sale. We're so honored. Atlas Games is doing a special for our listeners only. Use coupon code KENANDROBIN23, that's spell out A-N-D in Ken and Robin, to save 20% on your games and books at atlas-games.com. Like Robin's action-packed feng shui and conspiracy-drenched over the edge. Or Ken's mini-mythos series of Cthulhu-themed children's books, like Goodnight Azathoth and Clifford the Big Red God. So who writes our banter in these Atlas ads? Our good friend Michelle Nephew. Sometimes I think the power goes to her head a little. Like last month where she had me singing Christmas carols for Weird Little Elf? Yeah, I kind of noticed that. Yeah, this month Atlas Games is running a sale on products that two of us have written for them. But what does that have to do with me repeating, Michelle is a goddess and we bow before her greatness? Her script cues are even worse. I can't stop hitting myself. Ken, just because it's in the script notes doesn't mean you have to actually slap yourself. It's it's audio. It's a podcast. Our listeners can't see you. I don't feel so good. The things we do for our listeners. But at least this month, they're getting 20% off on books and games written by the two of us. Just head over to atlas-games.com for your exclusive discount on feng shui, over the edge, and mini mythos products. Then use the coupon code KENANDROBIN23 at checkout. The of dice, the of miniatures, the of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton welcome us once more into an anechoic edition of the Gaming Hut. Thanks to beloved Patreon backer Scott Wachter, who says, pursuant to a tossed-off genius tweet of Robin D. Laws on Twitter, please talk about the electronic and or gaming properties of anechoic chambers. I think... To begin with, Robin, don't game in an anechoic chamber. That would be my first piece of advice. Don't do that. That would be eerie and weird. Well, yeah. I guess, first of all, let's explain what an anechoic chamber is before we tell you not to game in it, at yep. which point you will not want to game in it. Ideally. One thing would be very expensive. You have, mm-hmm. you have to rent time in it. And so uh, my tweet was a, a quote tweet, that beloved subgenre of tweets, and it linked to a New York Times Magazine article by Katie Weaver, who talked about her time going into it's sort of one of these, you know, I do a stunt and write about it style of journalism, where she went into the uh, anechoic laboratory in Minneapolis. And as, you know, the, the dropouts in your introduction suggested, this is a place, a location that is so completely buffered from outside sound that all you can hear while you're in it is the sound of your own body. And uh, this apparently is quite psychologically destabilizing. Uh, We often think that we uh, want quiet, but absolute quiet uh, turns out to be uh, kind of eerie. And we don't even need to add the part of the story where people think that you 
lose your mind in an anechoic chamber because, in fact, that's already part of the lore. Right, yeah. It's part of anechoic word on the street thanks to a excitable piece in the Daily Mail. I'm not sure they have a second version of a piece in the Daily Mail, but they <laughs> yeah, we of... can take the excitable as right. Well, I guess they're sleazy. <laughs> yeah, all right. Well, but still, there's other types of pieces, other types of excitement that they go for. Anyhow, they uh, sort of blew this uh, site up a few years back. They did a piece on the Anechoic Chamber. It was full of eerie quotes from the guy who runs it. Like, you become the sound, which is cool. The rumor is that you, the only thing you can hear is your blood circulating and that that will drive you mad, uh, that no one can stay in an anechoic chamber for 45 minutes or else, I, I guess, you know, they come out and they don't make any sounds or something bad happens to them. There's a uh, absence of sound causes you to hyper-focus on nothing, so you start hallucinating. It's a big bunch of woo. And then to make it even wooier, the only source worse than the Daily Mail, TikTok, picked it up. And there suddenly became a viral legend that you got $7 million for staying in the Orfield anechoic chamber for a given amount of time. And so people started calling up Mr. Orfield, who runs his anechoic chamber, mostly to test industrial products like, can we make this microwave oven quieter? That kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, can we shut this mattress up? Right. It's too squeaky. Let, let's make it less squeaky. And is it less squeaky? Take it into the chamber. We'll find out. And they started pestering Mr. Orfield. So Mr. Orfield says, not only now is there no prize, which there never was, except for the secret prize I can't talk about, the prize of your own silence, but you have to pay 600 bucks an hour if you want to be in my anechoic chamber. Which is probably less than the washing machine pays. Yeah, yeah. I think the washing machine guys probably pay a, a, a premium, but if you're uh, Joe Tourist or uh, Katie, New York Times Magazine writer, same basic situation. You're paying six bills an hour to hang out and go mad listening to your blood, except I guess we should fun ruin it now. You don't. <laughs> you're, you're just super bored and rabbit trailing around in your head like you are if you are, say, in bed but can't get to sleep. Right. Or, or so the veil out goes, but we'll yeah. get to that in a minute. So the funnest part, I think, of Katie Weaver's perfectly fun magazine piece was the origin of the anechoic chamber which was invented by an acoustical engineer named Leo Baranek in 1943 at Harvard as part of the Ghost Army Project. Yes. Ooh. And I put the Ghost Army under a different name, of course, because it's not in the American Armed Forces in this, but in the uh, Yellow King Wars sequence, one of the options is that you basically play a unit based on the Ghost Army, which is a, a tactical confusion and subterfuge unit that came up with all of these cool ways to uh, prank and confuse the enemy, some of which were actually used in the battlefield, and all of which you can employ as uh, part of your game. So this, first of all, cries out for a an anechoic effect that you could put in, in the wars, because uh, that's that's where the history comes from. Mm -hmm. In this specific case, they wanted to test speakers that could make as much noise as an armored division, but they couldn't test them in Harvard because the people of Boston would call the cops and say, there's an armored division out in Cambridge and we don't like it. And in 1943, that, that would have raised eyebrows. That yes. would have disturbed people. Right. Nowadays, it's just water under the bridge and people make fun of each other. Oh, you don't like the armored division? Why don't you move back to Somerville, you poser? Yeah. It's not as loud as a Nugent concert. So Leo Baranek invented a chamber in which they could test these microphones that would make this cool Patton is here noise. And the chamber, as you say, is a soundproof box inside another soundproof box lined with wedges. And this 
is where the anechoic part comes in because the wedges are coated with foam or cloth to absorb sound, which means there's no echoes. And the trick is that everywhere you are normally, you don't really hear your own voice. You hear echoes of it because it's bouncing off the walls. It's bouncing off your furniture. It's bound. It's, you know, bouncing off, you know, whatever other people's voices, the same, every sound you hear is mediated because it's bouncing off the other surfaces. So you're hearing a different version of sound than you get in the pure version of an anechoic chamber. And the anechoic chamber is described as being outside on an empty plane on a perfectly still day. And that that's the quality of sound you get. And Voices in it sound like they're being spoken into your ear because that's the only time you ever hear sounds without echoes is if someone says them right into your ear. So the science of it is, well, I mean, it's a fun optical or I guess acoustical effect to think about. And it it begins to get us, I think, into the perceptual woo part that uh, Scott Wachter no doubt hoped we would get to at some point. Right. And so this is basically sort of a telengast variant Mm -hmm. where the most obvious thing is, is that someone goes in and they expect to hear only their own blood. But uh, if you wait long enough, you can go beyond that and begin to hear the voices from elsewhere, that that this is an opportunity for the non-Euclidean realm or the outer dark or uh, Carcosa to burst through into your perceptions, possibly in a safe environment, right? It might be here's a way to get close to the membrane and listen to the plans of the outer dark entities and emerge supposedly safely. But of course, we know that the players won't be fooled by the supposedly in that. Right. And so it calls out for a narrative of someone whose uh, perceptions and in fact, inner reality are completely changed uh, by uh, the exposure to whatever that allows them to experience and then come out the other side to do you know, whatever sort of terrible harm that triggers the interest of the investigators. And that can be just that it might be that people are just disappearing in the anechoic chamber. They're being transmitted into another place or, you know, if they become the sound, well, once you're a sound wave, you're ephemeral, you're gone. So it could Mm -hmm. just be that the owner of the chamber has a little switch that he flips and uh, special people who come in and pay him the 600 bucks uh, he arranges to get rid of. Uh, But it's probably more interesting if the person comes out completely changed and you know now they they can't hear the earth but they can hear carcosa or the sonic entities from the outer dark are now floating through their bloodstream and impelling them to do whatever and in a sort of a modern day this is normal now situation you could just start off with the tiktok people are beginning to uh, disappear after taking this challenge or you search for them and you find them on a compound somewhere planning something terrible. So it writes itself, but in a whole lot of different possible variations. Yeah. The other sort of example is that the CIA, of course, did a lot of experimentation on sensory deprivation as both a means of interrogating people. There is a terrific Colin Wilson novel about that called The Black Room. There is, you know, actual evidence that the CIA was paying John Lilly's bills when he was inventing the sensory deprivation tank. This is part of that, right? Not being able to hear sounds or echoes having this pure absence of sound as part of sensory deprivation. So you can make the chamber completely black. That is how the journalist who went in, Katie Weaver, experienced it. So you've got no sight, you've got no sound. Obviously, it doesn't smell like anything. It's, you know, a metal chamber full of 
uh, acoustic wedges, acoustic wedges that don't smell like much. And I'm sure you can damp the smell with some sort of, you know, smelly white noise. And she was just lying on the ground, but you can imagine a, a situation in which you're suspended on some sort of thin cloth and you, and you don't feel much. And so you're in a total sensory deprivation area. The CIA also may have used some of that for their attempted remote viewing experiments. You go into the sensory deprivation chamber and you are able to remote view Soviet installations across the globe. But of course, total gas style, you're also remote viewing Carcosa or Yugath or other strange and horrible dimensions that exist in the, you know, infra realm. And if you've got a CIA team that has been going in there, you know, every day and twice on weekends to, you know, hunt Al Qaeda and now they're out, and we're done, right? New administration. We're done with that program. Off you go. And of course, you've got this sort of elite team of, of, of spy badasses who, of course, have all been twisted and turned around by the outer dark or, uh, Carcosa or whatever. That gives you a sort of, you know, high level bad guy to, to show up a lot. And they're all part of this same project. You know, instead of Project Grill Flame, it can be Project Black Sound or something. And they, we're all black sound veterans and survivors, and maybe they're all teamed up to do the bidding of the Migo or whoever they were listening to, or maybe they're all off doing their own crazy things that it's a way of actually seeding esoterror into a person. And they're all starting their own esoterror cults. Who can say, but it's, but it's a fun notion that you can easily and, and realistically cross it over with the military industrial complex and get any number of, of bad guys. And of course the end is the player characters have to go into a chamber like that for some reason and confront the source at the source and just hope that they don't, you know, get taken over themselves. And you run the session right with just a, a thing on the, on your phone that visually rolls the dice. No one gets to make any dice clatter. No one can talk. You can only sort of signal what you're doing. It's very exciting. In a superhero game, you can use this as the origin of how your character got uh, sonic powers. And to circle back to the wars, we can imagine, at least in the altered physics of a realm suffused with Carcosa, that you can have an anechoic ray that you can perhaps uh, use to blanket your own forces so that uh, rather than having the sound of a bunch of Sherman tanks that don't exist, you could have a bunch of real armored vehicles that your unit has learned how to, you know, blanket them uh, with a, a, a sound cloak that, so that the enemy can't hear them approaching. And that's the thing that gets you into the situation that then uh, itself turns weird. Or, you know, there's uh, supernatural implications to using what is obviously a Carcosan technology and begins to affect you as the operators of this device so that can kind of get into the idea of you're being, you know, the forward bleeding edge of the military industrial complex and what that starts to do to you when uh, you're using Carcosan energy to do it. And I guess you can also, by extension, there is a radio frequency anechoic chamber that they test antennas in to see if they're leaking any uh, radio noise. And so once you've got a chamber that cuts off one kind of wavelength, maybe there's a chamber that cuts off brainwaves and you suddenly you can't think or you can only think about certain things. Maybe there's a chamber that cuts off key force. 
and it's where you imprison Kung Fu masters if you're worried that they will bust up your uh, bad operation because they're locked off from key and they can't access it. And uh, it's only their tiny internal amount of key that keeps them alive at all in it, because otherwise it would just drain someone like a big vampire box. And perhaps the vampires, the vampire conspiracy and nice black agents build their Renfields by putting them in the anechoic chamber and keeping them far away from the world's life force so that they have to open up a, a you know, a, a gate to the vampire dimension or whatever. And that's how they become Renfields. It's not their blood. It's the, fact that they've joined the vampires in this world of total separation from life and that that's they're, they're the acoustic ghouls so acoustic ghouls yeah that's a great name for a band or a villain frankly yes uh well now that we're playing band or album it's time for us to uh head through this commercial to uh i don't know i think uh, we may be continuing a little theme on the other side The skies above New Olympus are patrolled by caped crusaders, but these superior beings are far from heroes. They wield their powers with reckless disregard, serving the interests of corporate overseers and silencing those who oppose their will. You are Clara Keenig, investigative journalist for the pedestrian newspaper. You intend to prove that the privileged superhuman elite do not yet hold a monopoly on justice. Welcome to Alter Egomania, the newest setting for the Gumshoe one-to-one system. Featuring a quick start rules guide, printable problem and edge cards, and a starter adventure. Alter Egomania contains everything you need to run a one-player, one-GM game set in a universe of corrupt superheroes. Exclusively available in PDF. The exciting format unaffected by global paper shortages. That can't get stuck in customs. That's waiting for you right now. At the Pelgrane Press web store. Or drive through RPG. The rattle of chains. The shriek of specters. The strange crosses looming by the roadside in a day-for-night shot welcome us into the horror hut, where at the behest of Ray Slakinski, we combine two interests of this podcast, vampires and Canada. Right. Uh, And so this is not an all-request episode, but this is an all-requesters are members of my own gaming group (laughs) episode. (laughs) Fair enough. Okay, so yes, we have a, a, a vampire so Canadian that I had not heard of it until uh, Ray brought it to our attention. Yeah, so anyway, uh, Ray continues, having said, the will-know vampire, uh, what is the real story here, and how can we game small-town vampire Knights Black Agents? And to begin with, Wilno is a town in Ontario, so it's your stomping grounds, right. Robin. It's probably originally called Vilno and probably undoubtedly now referred to as, as Wilno. Yep. It is founded in 1864 by Kashubian immigrants. Kashubia is the part of Poland that's right bang up against Eastern Prussia, the the bit that's uh, right next to Gdansk and right next to Kaliningrad. Right. You divide Poland up into, you know, which parts get invaded by who first. So this would be exactly. the, the German invasion part. Yep. And uh, the Kashubians, following the failure of the Polish Revolution and the clamp down by the Prussian government. Covered in a previous episode. Covered in previous episode, exactly. Said, we would rather be anywhere than here. Canada's giving away land. Let's go there. And so, sure enough. Yeah. And guess what? The land that Canada West, which 
which is now known as Ontario, was giving away in 1864. It was a ways up yeah. from Ontario. It's a three-hour drive from my hometown, and it's near uh, present-day Algonquin Park, for those of you who, who know Ontario. And Algonquin Park, of course, is the home of a major Canadian eleptonic mystery, which is uh, how exactly did the painter Tom Thompson disappear? And probably canoeing accident, but, you know, we've made a big deal of that and made it into a, a big mystery that's even less exciting than the Oak Island mystery. <laughs> well, you know, missing painter, that's a thing. And yeah. uh, now that we know that he's uh, right up there in vampire country. Maybe we uh, finally got an interesting answer to the disappearance of Tom Thompson. Right. So right there, mission accomplished. I, I say vampire country because a budding vampirologist, a uh, linguist from Austin, Texas, named John Perkowski, at the behest of the National Museum of Man, Robin, which I assume, or Royal Museum of Man, which I assume is one of your Toronto museums. It's in Ottawa, actually. It's in Ottawa. Was paid to go find fun things out about a Canadian ethnic group with the remit, try not to make it a boring thing, and uh, went and gathered the Kashub folk tales from the old folks in Wilno, or Vilno. Went on his tour there in 68 and 69, so proper fall of Delta Green era, and came out with the paper of Vampires, Dwarves, and Witches Among the Ontario Kashubs, which, when published in 1972, raised a stir because the people of Wilno said, hey, our grandparents were just saying things. We don't believe in vampires. <laughs> and they were very mad. And then they found out that the, you know, the government had paid him to go make up vampire stories or write down vampire folktales and pretend it was their beliefs. And they got even madder. And so it was denounced on the floor of the House of Commons, Robin. Very big deal. Well, government-sponsored leg pulling yeah. is a big issue. Yeah. And uh, we had big worries to have in 1972. So, yeah, this is a sufficiently obscure bit of alleged lore that <laughs> it isn't even mentioned in uh, John Robert Colombo's Mysterious Canada, which is your first stop for all Canadian elliptony. And if you're going to say to me, well, yeah, but it didn't include little obscure bits of you know, folklore as part of a Canadian mystery in order to have one in a given place. You bet he did. So <laughs> the kerfuffle that this inspired in the House of Commons was, I think, a, a slow news day event. And so I yeah. can't say that the, the Vilno vampire is deeply rooted in, in, in my awareness, which, of course, just makes it a better vampire. Right, exactly. Doing a better job of hiding. And undoubtedly, it was the vampires who were calling for this denunciation on the floor of the House of Commons. They were trying to cover it up. And anyway, the information that Prakowski gathered, and I think that good people can differ as to whether he gathered it from grandmas who actually believed it, grandmas who were pulling his leg, or a different book entirely, which he quotes extensively throughout the paper. Anyhow, according to Kashubian lore, possibly Kashubian lore in Vilno, there's two kinds of vampires. There's the Vyeshchi and the Vupij, and babies with calls, or as they're called, birth caps, become Vyeshchi after death. But if their mom is alert and takes the call and dries it and powders it and feeds it to them on their seventh birthday, they won't become Vyeshchi, which is good. Right. And the, like remembering to powder it is okay. Sure. You do that at the time. But seven years later, there's a lot of remembering and a lot of call powder holding on to involved with that. So you can see that that probably goes awry a lot. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's not a foolproof methodology, I'm sure, even if you are given like a little baby book with an odd page at the end saying seventh birthday, you know, 
you know what to do. I, I feel like that there, there could be many slips, but the trouble is babies born with two teeth become whoopies and there's nothing you can do about it. That's just the kind of vampire they become and everyone's very sad, but there you go. I'd say tooth teeth is, is rarer than, than a, call. a call. And if you hope. think of how small Vilno is, this probably never happens. Like it's a tiny little village. What statistical odds are you of a call or a two tooth vampire? Yeah, it's, it's population is, is like 300 or something like that, right? It's Unless it runs in families. It must run in families. Yeah, well, I, I assume so. Vampire bloodline. I mean, this has been canon since 1991. But at any rate, once you get to be a grown up Vieshi or Vupage, or rather a dead person who then rises as a Vieshi or Vupage, you become a basically standard vampire. You emerge from your grave, you wander around drinking blood, you can, you know, turn into shadows. It's your basic vampire. And the only way to stop the vampire is to open the tomb at midnight and drive a long nail into his forehead. Or you can just do the old beheading trick and you chop the head off and you put it between the feet of the corpse and then the head can't get up to business. And so that's your basically your prophylactic action that you take. If you are a Kashub in the Middle Ages, or maybe a Vilnovian settler in the 19th century, or maybe, maybe, maybe if you're a Vilnovian grandpa in 1969 and you've tried to warn this guy from Texas, but he's not listening, and now you've got to do what needs to be done. And I, I should mention that Vilno was the scene of a fairly uh, newsworthy murder of three women by a guy and I originally thought, ooh, mysterious uh, murder, that ties into vampires, but it's not a vampire-style murder. It's just the kind of horribly disgusting, not fun murder where someone just gets into their head to kill all their former partners and does so. so yeah, it's that whole real-world horror. Nothing vampire about it, except that if you've got a vampire that feeds on psychic wounding or something, maybe this is how that breaks out in a world where they've Mostly kept the, the Vieshi and the Vupage threats down. Right. But don't make that integral to your plot line because, right, because it's just easily X-carded out. Right. Yeah. So I, I assume also that whether you're a Vieshi or a, a Wupji, that after that you bite people and they become vampires, right? Yeah. So th that it does spread, um, in the same way that the tuberculosis vampires in Rhode Island would spread, that you're basically spreading disease by your vampire bite and the disease will make them die and then rise again as vampires. So Tom Thompson could be a vampire now, yes. or he just could have been killed by a, a vampire. Uh, now we get to the second part of uh, Ray's question, which, uh, excuse me, Ray, this, it does sound kind of like you're asking, how do you play chess by throwing away the board and the pieces and instead having a unicorn and ice cream? But how do you do small town vampire NBA, Ken? Yeah, it's going to, it's going to feel a lot like one of the station duty style Esoterror games where you are at one spot that has weird stuff happen. So it's going to wind up feeling a, you know, depending on your style and your group, it's going to either feel more like Twin Peaks or more like Buffy because you're not leaving Vilno, Ontario or your, you know, credible impression there. Not a lot of opportunities for chases or. Yeah. Uh, so I would think that really this is the first scene in your sequel campaign mm -hmm. where the characters think they've killed off all the vampires the first time you ran. And the players are bugging you to, to run up again. And so they're all, they've all retired to a small, sleepy community nowhere near Europe. And right. in the or first, one of them has and they see the signs and they call their friends and they say, we have to do it again. Yeah, exactly. And then you go back to having regular NBA. Because I don't think you can, you can have a, 
as you point out, like a, a Buffy thing, but it's not going to be NBA. Yeah. I mean, you can use the NBA rules, certainly, but you are, I would assume, pretty short on opportunities to be a wheelman or a hacker or whatever in small town Canada and do much. You know, again, I could see a version of a small town being a locus for some vampiric evil. Maybe the meteor hit there. Maybe the Kashubians brought a deadly vampire over and then staked him in the new land so that he could never rise and hurt old Kashubia again. And that's where all this comes from. And that you have a sort of an investigative period where you're trying to figure out what's going on in this little town and you're solving all of the other domestic problems. And maybe that there's like a, you know, a justified style that there's a pill mafia somewhere you have to, you know, realize, oh, they messed with the wrong guys type situation. But it is a pretty self-contained story because in Night's Black Agents, once you find the Black Lodge or the whatever, you end it. And that's how it works. That's not the model for Buffy and it's not the model even, uh, it turns out, for Twin Peaks. So the story is going to wind up, if you're sticking to the NBA structure, it's going to wind up being either very constrained or a initial scenario that starts the sequel and now you have to hunt down the sons of Kashub all over America where they've been spreading with their two teeth and their baby calls, right? Right. Well, I think on that note, it's time for us to uh, walk through the woods, through this commercial, and see what we find on the other side, perhaps in a more populated area. The Best of Ask Fageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Make sure that sounds continue to emanate from this podcast by joining such backers as... Matt Farr. Sam Rutzik. Sean Hoyle. The Molten Sulphur Blog. And Randy Ship. And once again, we're going to uh, recycle audio in the segment we call Ken and Robin Recycle Audio. This is the last chunk of questions from the Dragon Meat uh, 2022 Horror role-playing masterclass that uh, Gareth Ryder Hanrahan uh, did with uh, you and I, Ken. And the first question we're going to uh, recycle this time around was about running scenes where the characters face a threat that outmatches them. No, I mean, just make sure the players always have something they can do. Nothing will kill the mood for straight players more than like, you know, like I open the door, the door's sealed shut by a magical force. I try the window, it's also sealed. Is there anything in the room? No, you're trapped here. Give the players 
even if they lead to serious dead ends, make sure there's always some action they can take. Could be a feel scenario where basically the aim is like, you know, you get to sort of come to terms with the fact you're doomed, that's fine. But just shutting them down every turn gives them a sense of progress, even if that progress ultimately leads them to the edge of a chasm and the only choice is basically jump or be pushed. And create an in-game conceit that they can work toward and earn that gives them a possibility of success that ordinary people wouldn't have, right? So that, uh, you know, everyone who's ever gone into this tomb for the last hundred years has not come out. But you've got the amulet that they didn't have. And so that creates, A, the idea that this thing you're facing is extraordinarily powerful, but B, there's a justification that you have that, although you're still going to be really outmatched, that you have a reason that you can think you can possibly survive because it is easy to overscare the players but when you set it up that way they won't go oh well the shadow entity wasn't a big deal because I don't know why those other hundred people didn't kill it well you do know it's a thing that you actually had to go and get and you know sneak away from the robed cultists in order to get so you felt like you earned it and next we were asked for advice in adding horror to a game that doesn't typically include it horror is in the storytelling and the mood at the table so there are mechanical systems that are more or less conducive to horror so a game in which player characters are unkillable or even unthreatenable uh, a high level D&D game a game where people have lots and lots of different options for nerfing the bad guys those are harder to do a horror element in a game that is just you know we're playing Traveler, but there's horror. You could do that easily because Traveler characters are relatively fragile. And as long as, you know, the BFG doesn't hurt the ghost, well, now you're back to the actual horror again. So I would say differentiate in your mind, is this game system agnostic about horror? Is it, you know, literally antithetical to horror? Because if it's agnostic, you can just do all the other techniques that we've talked about to introduce horror. And it can be a that one scary episode of Traveler or whatever, if you are trying to add horror to Dungeons and Dragons or high-level Dungeons and Dragons, well, first of all, there's you know the Pathfinder Horror Book and there's Ravenloft and there's lots of other people have attempted to do that, but their general response is to carve away at character power over the universe. So in Ravenloft, clerical spells work differently. Lots of other things work differently. And you may just you know find yourself in the situation of having to give all the, you know, outsider monsters plus 10 damage or something like that to get back into a place where that math works out and that equation feels knife-edgy again. But you, again, this is one of the other reasons you need everyone at the table to buy in, because if they don't, they're just like, well, I didn't work in Slave to get ninth level just to be nerfed again, you jerk. How dare you? So you have to, you know, sort of... Um, signal it and say, ooh, this is the mist curtain that leads to Barovia. Do you want to go there? And if they say, yeah, we want to go to Barovia, that'll We're going to awesome. burn it down and kill everyone. We're going to kill Strahd. <laughs> um, then great, they're idiots and they deserve their death. <laughs> but if they say, you know, you know what? I've heard bad things about my spell powers in Barovia. I would rather not. Then you're, well, there we go. We're not playing horror. We're back to regular D&D. What advice would you give to horror players? So think of the best possible gift you could give to your horror GM and make that part of your character. So give them a big old hook that the GM can use for uh, story purposes. So my twin sister died, I saw her ghost once, and I'm looking to meet her ghost again. 
or there's a strange part of my family tree where instead of a name, there's just like a little drawing of a wolf. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I have, you know, strange dreams at night about this uh, skeletal figure that keeps inviting me to a wedding. And often the game will tell the GM to ask all the players to do that, but I don't know if this particular one will. So make that gift to them, something that they can spin all sorts of interesting things. And uh, that will, you know, as an added bonus, he's going to want to not quite kill your character <laughs> because all of his plots will depend on the cool thing <laughs> that he did. I was running Unknown Armies uh, a while back, no, by now, decades back. <laughs> and one of my players, who is very much the horror GM's gift, given his penchant for opening coffins, said... Uh, I know I'm coming into this game a little late, Ken, but is it all right if I'm under my grandfather's blood curse and don't know it? And I said, well, Josh, it's a bit of a stretch, <laughs> but for you, I'll try to make it happen. It's irregular, but I'll allow it. Uh, yeah, I guess so. And then the other thing is, is be open to the horror, right? Be willing to play towards the fear and try and get yourself out of a sort of a chess piece tactical mentality and into a... Uh, I've got this uh, skeletal bride that keeps inviting me to stuff. This is dominating my life. This is what I think about, not do I get a flanking bonus, right? And, you know, lean into it in role play, lean into it in your character thing. So if you're like, I want to keep having ghost visions, so I'm going to see, uh, can I have second sight? Can I, you know, is there a power that will let me be part of the horror universe Instead of just, I'm just going to make five more levels of gun. I think that'll really work for me. And again, guns versus horror, I literally wrote the book on this. So I'm, I'm not against it. But make sure that that's the style or the flavor or whatever that the game is about. And, and then you can lean into it and then embrace it. Yeah, I mean, you, you want your character, like imagine your character at the top of the spooky steps, leaning down into the haunted basement. You want your character to be smart enough and aware enough to know that that's a very bad idea but still have a reason to go down and face the horror there. Because you, you want to basically have a, some calling, some drive that brings you on to confront the horror. And uh, we have a couple of questions on a sort of a similar note. And the first of these is, is theater of the mind description of a place always better than, say, for example, putting a map of a haunted house in front of the players? I would avoid using a, a map to position people during a scene. Uh, or during a fight, but they can be extremely evocative, especially in period horror, in creating a sense of where you are and a sense of period. So I would, if you have a cool map, show it to them as a player handout, say, You've re you have this map, but then not talk about it during a scene where they're supposed to be scared. So I, I would keep the, the maps to the sort of expository and investigative portions and not have them during the being scared portions. Yeah, it, it's, especially if your table is, you know, people who are used to tactical combat gaming, giving them a map where their characters are situated is really feeding those habits that you want them to unlearn. If they're not about that, then, you know, showing them this is what the, you know, basement looks like is a great way to get everyone into the same theater, right? And sometimes the map legitimately scares them. I'm right now, my Fall of Delta Green game, uh, they're in Minot, North Dakota in 1968, and I showed them a map. This is what the nuclear missile field looks like that you're standing in the middle of. That scared the bejesus out of them. <laughs> they're like, that's the whole state. Actually, yeah, yeah, it is. And you're there. <laughs> Look at all those nuclear missiles right around you, ready to go off in case you do something stupid. What are the odds of that happening? You. <laughs>
Uh, the next asker talked about sometimes taking away mechanical elements from the players to plunge them into sort of an atmospheric or theatrical descriptive horror. And uh, we were asked if there's a point where that uh, actually detracts from the game. I think it depends on, again, uh, not to keep coming back to this, but this is my zeroth law in action again. This, it depends on the players. If the players want to use all of those mechanics as a crutch, taking it away makes them feel angry and, sh and shortchanged. If what they want to do is lean into the horror, abstracting the mechanics the way that we talked about earlier is actually doing them a favor. And you're not going to know which it is until you've tried probably both. And sadly, what's probably going to happen is one of your players feels really shortchanged and the rest of the table's like, yes, finally, we don't have to count every bullet for our encumbrance. Yeah. So it's, it's going to be a matter of negotiation and, and um, uh, figuring out what works for everyone or which player has to be told, oh, I'm sorry, we moved the game. Did we not tell you? But the generally, when you say, what is the right amount? It's like, what is the right amount of chili powder in chili? Well, it depends on your tongue. I'm not the boss of your mouth. I'm not the boss of your table. But by and large... I would say the, the most you can get away with is the good amount, just like chili. We were asked for advice on uh, hosting games virtually, and even though we just answered that uh, at length in our previous episode, Gar has an interesting suggestion, so I thought we would uh, drop in the answer to that. For games that I, oh, I find running games online quite hard, make sure they always have something to do with the text of the game. So I love handouts and documents and so forth. What I would often do for running a game like that is have some fairly... Not only the length of the detailed or dense handout the players return to again and again, like you know, a diary written by a madman, it's full of weird illusions and so forth. Played that, that early on, and even then, if they're not involved in the current scene and they're like their characters just like you're listening or something, they can be looking at that as opposed to checking Twitter. Would you suggest sending out like a physical copy, mailing it out to people? If you're really enthusiastic, then yes. <laughs> <laughs> when I was running my Fall of Delta Green campaign over Slack in you know the pandemic. I found that putting up, you know, visuals of, you know, this is the creepy canyon that you're in, and I found a picture of a creepy canyon, and there we are, and just feeding a lot more of that into it really helped build uh, engagement and keep, because even if they're checked out a little bit, they're looking at the map and saying, oh, this is a very isolated mesa that we're on, I don't like the look of that. And then the other thing that you have to do, because you don't have the physical primate proximity of feeding emotional energy to each other is you really have to make the recipe richer. You have to be more on your A-game as a GM. You have to be, you know, you can't present just an NPC whose job is to give the information. They have to be creepy or weird or engaging. It's, it's a richness. It's a lushness. And so if you think of, you know, you, you can't be making a, a German expressionist silent. You have to make an Italian giallo movie of a horror game because the players need more mouthfeel. They need to, to have more stuff to <laughs> chew on uh, as they're playing or else they will check out because it's just they don't have the other, the, the rest of the troop of monkeys to keep them on point. And uh, you don't have two million years of evolution working for you. You have actually it working against you and you really just have to over-egg the pudding and make it much richer than you might ordinarily. It's like, I have really gone too far I can't be describing a broken tibia with this level of loving detail. Well, you kind of have to. <laughs> and that is the wrap-up of all of the Horror Masterclass answers. Hope you enjoyed them. And it's time for us to uh, all go and enjoy this next commercial.
Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. It's time once more to wend our way up the creep. Oh, wait, there's a, a, there's a note. We're not supposed to meet the consulting occultist uh, this time around in his Edwardian parlor, but he and the fire salamander have gone to Venice. So I guess we're going to meet them in a black gondola because esteemed Patreon backer Jamie Twine wants to know the folklore, mythology, and occult weirdness of Venice. So, Ken, I guess we've got a a whole list of these, and uh, I ha- I found a few. You found a lot more, so let's do these uh, quick hit style, I guess. Yeah, I mean, the, the, just to begin with, saying, give us the folklore, mythology, and occult weirdness of Venice, this is a bigger than a 15-minute answer. <laughs> There's a lot. Right, so if any one of these individual ones strikes a Jamie or anyone else as something you would like us to expound upon at greater length, you know where your Patreon message queue is. I begin with sort of the thing that when I first read about it, I said, oh, this has to be magic. And it turns out, indeed, it is or was. I'm not the guy who thought this was magic. Everyone thought this was magic, certainly from the 19th century onward. But it's called the Marriage to the Sea. And uh, back in the day, starting circa 1000, but maybe even earlier, uh, the Doge of Venice would sail out into the Adriatic Sea, and he would throw a golden ring into the sea to symbolically marry the sea to the city of Venice, sort of expressing dominion, because, of course, you know, he was the doge, he was going to be in charge, and the sea was going to be an obedient bride to him. And that was a thing they did every Ascension Day. It became a giant ritual. It's still done. The mayor of Venice still does it to this day. And obviously... And now the sea is really moving in. Right, (laughs) yeah. Uh, So the, you know, there's lots of precedent to throwing an offering into the ocean, going all the way back to, you know, Iphigenia in the beginning of the Trojan War. So this is just a straight-up pagan ritual, and the fact that it was done by the Doge of Venice does not change, that it's a straight-up pagan ritual, and it is core to the activity of the city. It's, it's, It's fundamental, you know, first nature is... We're in charge of the ocean, not the other way around. As you say, the ocean is getting a little of its own back now, but there we are. Right. Speaking of things that are core to the city, the Grand Canal itself takes the form of a sea serpent or a dragon. And so that's it's a, a dragon city or a, a sea monster uh, city, which undoubtedly, when you go to Venice, you know, maybe you can't propitiate the sea because she's married. She doesn't want to hear it from you. But what about the dragon? You can call on the, the magic of the water dragon. And I should mention that the water dragon has been seen as a sea serpent right off the Punta della Dogana at the mouth of the Grand Canal. And I say Punta della Dogana, perhaps it's Punta della Dagona. Maybe it's Dagon is, is connected to all of this. And now we've got a Dagon Hydra uh, adventure going on. There's also a dragon's bones 
at the Church of Santa Maria and San Donato on the island of Murano. St. Donato went and he killed a, a dragon, and the bones are in the church. And if you say those are whale bones, well, we have nothing to say to each other, sir. There's a cursed villa, the Caudario. It was uh, built in 1479. And uh, ever since then, its owners and occupants and even guests have been suffering murders, misfortune, and deaths at a higher than statistically normal rate. Uh, so that's <laughs> undoubtedly uh, the place where you get uh, the player characters get stationed for some reason. Uh, most recently, it killed John Entwistle of The Who. People think it was that he just had a heart condition. But guess what drove that to the unfortunate end? That was the, the, the Caudario. There is a, uh, speaking of haunted buildings in Venice, there is a haunted building called the House of the Spirits, the Casino degli Spiriti, that is near the Palazzo Contarini del Zafo. This was built in the 16th century. It's, you know, was a place where the Venetian philosophers and artists would have meetings. So it was like their little clubhouse. Tintoretto, Veronese, Titian. Well, you have a, a school of night attitude. Venice had a school of night attitude. They had hermetic philosophers and weirdos that would come and talk to the painters. This is no doubt where your, you know, uh, you know, secret Templars were meeting right. all manner of behavior because again, Venice. And this is the art period where artists are filling their canvases with esoteric and hermetic images. Exactly. And using alchemy to make paint uh, straight up. Yeah. And, uh, so the Casino degli Spiriti was abandoned and weird noises happened there. People said that, you know, demon worshipers would go there. There was a ghost of a painter named Pietro Luzzo de Feltre, who may or may not have existed. He and Giorgioni had a, a rivalry over a model. So maybe it was his ghost that caused it to be abandoned. It was used as a plague hospital. They say it was also an anatomical theater for autopsy and corpses. There's a lot of they say when you ask about the Casino Degli Spiriti because it's on a lot of tourist websites. I, only tourist websites know about the murdered people missing their heads and hands found in the casino in 1929. There is an actual murder of a woman named Linda Civetta, who is a uh, chopped up and put in a trunk and sunk in front of the building. And uh, even now it is said the fishermen do not fish in the basin in front of the casino daily spirity because they know it's full of ghosts and demonry. And uh, again, it's Venice. There's, uh, I found half a dozen haunted houses and I was barely even looking. St. Mark square is a, a big uh, center of elliptonic mention. So there are uh, statues of Moors, uh, two statues of Moors in, in St. Mark's Square. These, like trolls in Nordic folklore, are said to animate at night and walk around, and then they have to get back to their uh, positions, I guess like the toys in Toy Story, uh, before dawn. So you could encounter those uh, at night. Uh, there's also the Pillars of Acre, which are columns uh, that were looted from the near Middle East during the uh, Fourth Crusade. These have uh, indecipherable Syrian or Egyptian monograms on them, which, as we know, can mean only two things. One, portal to alternate dimension, or two, mm -hmm. just some sort of weird Mason stuff. Yeah. And while we're in St. Mark's Square, there's lots of stuff to talk about. We can start by saying the body of St. Mark. It's in a crypt underneath the St. Mark Basilica, obviously, and it was stolen from Alexandria in the ninth century by Venetian entrepreneurs, and they stole it. The Coptic Church in Alexandria says did not, and the Venetians say did so, so I guess it's a they said, they said situation. The Copts 
still have his head. The Venetians have his body. It's walled up in a pillar in the crypt underneath the basilica. And also, in while we're still hanging out in St. Mark's, we have the winged lion statue. Uh, the whole city is full of cats. Uh, the lion is, of course, the symbol of St. Mark the Evangelist. And he's the patron saint, hence St. Mark's Basilica, etc. And this specific winged lion may have been built to a whole different god, the god Sandosh of the Hittites, a variant of Heracles, built in Tarsus, and uh, using bronze that may go back to the Assyrian era. And so this is an extraordinarily old and weird and polyglot statue. And oh yeah, it just happens to be the symbol of the city of Venice. Just sits there on its pillar. All sorts of powers you can draw in there. Yep. Speaking of, if you want to go and, and need to capture some uh, mournful ghosts or some frightened or angry ghosts, go to the Bridge of Sighs, which is the bridge that connected the old prison to the doge's interrogation rooms in his palace. So this is where people would be dragged to or from torture session. Uh, and so, of course, they by sighs, we mean groans of pain and horror, and uh, you can still find their uh, ghosts and uh, get favors from them or, you know, maybe give them the favor of uh, freedom, allowing them to, to move on. But if you, you know, need some Renaissance era or earlier information about some doge or other, those ghosts are probably the ones who are likely to do it for you. Or if you want magic information, you can go ask the ghost of Giordano Bruno, who haunts the Palazzo Camozenigo, because the owner, Lord Mozenigo, whatever he was, turned Bruno over to the Pope. He, he ratted him out. And Bruno, rather than haunt the Pope, because the Pope has got people for this, thinks, I'm a brilliant uh, astronomer slash weirdo. I'm going to go haunt uh, the guy who sold me out. So Giordano Bruno still haunts that palazzo even now. So I can see him being madder at the guy who turned him over to the Pope. Yeah. Speaking of uh, esoteric weirdos, Venice was the stomping grounds of Francesco Giorgi, who was a, a Christian Kabbalist. Uh, his work's... Uh, influenced John D. John D. had copies of his tome, or a copy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you've got your a wizard guy who you can uh, talk to historically or again uh, summon in order to interrogate now. And I guess I would not be living up to my own remit if I did not mention that in 2009, doing excavations on the island Lazaretto Nuovo, they found a vampire. They found a, a lady, she was died or buried, I shouldn't say died, she's a vampire, uh, was buried in 1576 during a plague, so she's in the middle of this giant plague pit. Whether the plague was vampire attacks, I have no information. But they dug her up in 2009, and they knew she was a vampire, not because she came to life and attacked them, or so the story went, but because they buried her with a brick to hold her jaws open, which is a standard treatment for vampiring back in the day. You would discover there's a plague going around. You'd look around for a body that looked super not rotted. It still had blood on it, maybe. And you'd say, that's the vampire. And then as we've discussed earlier, if you're a cash you put a nail in its head. Other people will behead it. The Venetians, very practical, say, we've got bricks, stick them in the mouth. They can't do any vampire harm. On to the next body. We're busy people. We know that time is money. Right. And speaking of time being money, I think we've run out of time to list weird things about Venice. We don't have to make them gameable because we already did. <laughs> yeah, because Venice did that. So I guess uh, we can get on our gondola and uh, and sail away down the canal, but we'll be back probably in a less watery environment a mere week from today. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask for Gelm. Art Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Keep this podcast above sea level by joining such supportive backers as... Ryan Lassiter. Tenant Reed. Alan Wilkins. Dave Stecco. And Jacob Borsma. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our new classic design, Unicorn with a Better Armor Class. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>